The title of this evening's talk is The Pure and Beautiful Mind. The subtitle is <laughs> The Benefits of Concentration and Insight. With this evening's talk, we'll explore some of the wholesome and beautiful states or factors of mind, of heart, that are associated with the development and fruits of concentration and the development and deepening of insight practice, all of which includes a growing depth and clarity of mindfulness. The chief, as the Buddha called mindfulness, this chief quality of mind that accompanies us through all of our practice. The Buddha's very precise teachings and analysis of this, of these mind states or factors of mind are disclosed in, disclosed in the Abhidhamma Pitaka or basket. So I'd like to do just a brief review of what this Abhidhamma basket is all about. The Abhidhamma is one of three baskets, one of three divisions of the Pali Canon the authoritative record of the Buddha's teachings. And the first basket, or the first collection as it's sometimes called, is the Book of Discipline. This contains all the rules of conduct for the monks and nuns and all of the guidelines regarding governing the Sangha and living in community. The second collection or basket brings together all of the discourses, all of the teachings, all of the suttas that the Buddha gave over his 45 years of teaching. And the third collection or basket is the Abhidhamma Pitaka. And this basket has quite a distinctly different uh, character or quality than the other two. Whereas it's not a record of discourses, it's not a record of, or discussions uh, occurring in real life settings, which both of the other two baskets are very much rooted in. But rather the Abhidhamma is a very clear, detailed, and refined disclosure of the mind and mental processes that combine psychology, ethics or virtue and philosophy from the Buddhist perspective and it's combined into a unique and really quite a remarkable synthesis and very important it's experiential meaning it's what actually we actually experience as our practice develops and blossoms I think it's important uh, in that it can be helpful and inspiring at some point along the way of our practice to actually hear 
in at least some detail about some of the more refined experiential processes that take place in practice. To understand a bit more of how the mind works in practice. Through the years of my practice, I've found this information quite interesting in and of itself. As well as the fact that this information, this understanding, can help to counter the fears. It can help to counter other aversive reactions the, and the made-up and sometimes fanciful stories and analyses and the misperceptions and misunderstandings and, very important also, the attachments and the clinging that can come up in practice in relationship to what may be some unusual or maybe just simply unfamiliar experiences. Experiences, some of which Sayadaw Upandita calls Dhamma delights, the Dhamma delights of our practice. The Abhidhamma speaks about 36 wholesome mental or uh, beautiful uh, mental factors or states of mind associated with the development of concentration and and ongoing as mindfulness and wisdom unfold and blossom through our vipassana practice. The first five factors are active, wholesome mental factors that are applied to both the initial and the potential ongoing development of concentration. With the first two factors also being most necessary active components throughout our practice of insight. With the last three factors of mind in this body of five factors, Um, manifesting as active, wholesome, experiential states at particular times during Vipassana practice. And as well as during very specific aspects of the development and the manifestation of concentration. So the first five uh, well we won't quite go there yet Uh, So these first five of the 36 uh, wholesome and beautiful factors of mind, some of which actually many of you are experiencing, at least to some degree in this retreat. The first one being in Pali called vitaka. And it's translated as initial application. And... This means that it's the application of the mind to the object. This vitaka, this application of the mind to the object, has the characteristic of directing the mind into the object. So something that each of you are doing again and again and again as you're practicing in this retreat. For instance, with the in and the out sensations of the breath at the anapana spot or the movement of the breath in the belly. Very simple examples. 
very ordinary and experienced by every one of you examples. The function of Vitaka is to, as it's uh, said in the uh, Abhidhamma in a very graphic way, it's said to strike at or thresh the object. The process experientially manifests as leading or training the mind to the object, kind of like training a puppy, as it's sometimes described uh, by some people with their experience. Vitaka has the special task, we could say, and fruit of inhibiting the hindrance of sloth and torpor, inhibiting the hindrances of sleepiness and lethargy. And Vitaka is very, very closely connected, very closely associated with intention, right intention or wholesome intention, as it's talked about in the Noble Eightfold Path. So this is the first wholesome, beautiful, potentially, quality of the mind. The second is called vichara in Pali. And this is translated as the sustained application. The sustained application of the mind on the object. As it's spoken about in the Abhidhamma, It's described as the continued pressure or stroking of the object. So in a sense it means, what it really means is staying with it and seeing and knowing how it's manifesting. It's the continued exercise, so to say, of the mind on the object. And again, whether the object is the breath sensation at the Anapana spot or somewhere else in the body or anything else that you might experience at one of the six sense doors. Vichara, when it's in place, when it's active, it's an active force of the mind, an active quality of the mind, it temporarily totally inhibits the hindrance of doubt in states of deep concentration and it weakens doubt overall throughout the whole of one's practice, both concentration practice and insight practice. There are some really wonderful metaphors or similes uh, in the commentaries to the Abhidhamma highlighting the difference between vitaka and vichara. Vitaka is described like a bird spreading its wings to fly. So this initial application. All these similes are very um, kind of organic and quite poetic actually. Vichara is like a bird gliding through the air without stretched wings this sustained application. And another metaphor or simile for vitaka, like a bee diving towards a flower. So this initial application. 
And one more metaphor for vichara, like a bee buzzing above the flower. Sustained application. So that's the second of this body of five factors of mind. The third is in Pali called piti. And it's often, it's translated in many different ways, but the translation that I picked is zest and joy. The characteristic of piti is that it can be actually quite endearing when it occurs. And it can be explained as delight or a pleasurable interest in the object. So it's a quality of mind, a quality of heart. Its function is to refresh the body and refresh the mind. And it pervades the mind and it's in, in its initial stages, stages also pervades the body and often it's felt first in the body in, it, in its initial stages with a kind of thrilling feeling or thrills, thrills and chills as it's sometimes described. Um, and it's also sometimes described as a, a physical feeling of rapture. And later on as it develops, it's more, much more of a mental experience. Though none of these really um, cover all of its nuances. It has many nuances. It often manifests as a mind and body quality of elation. In the commentaries, there are five grades, as it's called, of piti. They're distinguished quite clearly. And, can ar- and they do, and they arise, these particular uh, grades or qualities of people, or of piti, <laughs> arise in people, uh, when vitaka and vichara are in place and perking in our practice. And some of these may be recognized by some of you as experience that, experiences that have occurred in your, your practice. So the first grade is called minor zest or minor joy. And it raises the hairs on the body. Some of you may have experienced that. Just as I said it, I kind of got a shiver and the little hairs on my arms felt like they stood up on end. (laughs) The second is called momentary joy or zest. And these, these show up as small flashes, kind of like a lightning in the mind. And I know some of you have experienced this. The third um, grade, so to say, of um, PT is called showering zest or showering joy. And this breaks over the whole body again and again and again, like waves on the seashore. The next uh, grade is called uplifting zest or uplifting joy. And this can cause the body to feel as though it's levitating. So it's actually lifting up. 
lifting up and sometimes it almost feels like it's lifting up off the ground which for some yogis has actually occurred and my my friend and co-teacher Saito Vivekananda tells a story about a monk in a monastery that uh, he was in at one point um, in Burma and this monk would sit on his bed in his room and practice and he had very very strong uh, experiences of this uplifting joy where his body would rise up and he'd fall over and this would happen again and again and again so this monk was I don't know who he was but he obviously was a little bit of an exhibitionist so he he made an announcement to the other monks and invited them to come to the window of his room at a certain time when he would be practicing this is a true story according to Sadavikananda that to come to the window and look in the window and see this occurrence happening and they were all very entertained by it (laughs) so that's one possibility Um, The next one is called pervading zest or pervading joy. And this this, uh, experience of piti floods the whole mind and the whole body with a very refreshing, bright elation. This feeling of a very refreshing, bright elation. And in the commentaries it's talked about like a flood that fills a cavern. So these are all possibilities and certainly some of which many of you have probably experienced to some degree. As a factor of mind, a sustained PT, particularly a PT that's experienced more as a state of mind rather than in the body, has the potential to weaken the hindrance of ill will. It actually has quite a strong potential to weaken the hindrance of ill will. And with a very focused and absorbed attention in the object, PT actually temporarily completely inhibits ill will. So that's the third of this body of five, the wholesome and beautiful states of mind, characteristics of mind. The fourth is in Pali called Sukha. And this is happiness, is one way that it's uh, translated. This mental factor is a very pleasant, happy mental feeling. It's a very sweet, blissful mental feeling that's born of detachment from sensual pleasures. So it's not a sensual experience, it's in the mind, born of detachment of sensual pleasures. And so it's explained uh, in the commentaries as unworldly or spiritual happiness. And it counters and weakens the hindrance of restlessness and worry. Although piti and sukha are quite closely connected, they're not the same. 
PT, uh, again in the Abhidhamma commentaries, it's compared to the delight of a weary traveler. It's compared to the delight that a weary traveler would experience when coming across an oasis. A, a traveler in the desert would experience when coming across an oasis. And sukha is compared to this traveler in the desert, um, to his or her pleasure after bathing and drinking from this oasis. So you kind of get the sense of the difference there. I think it's a very uh, graphic and visceral kind of um, explanation. The fifth of these five wholesome and beautiful mental factors in English is one-pointed. In Pali, it's ikagata. And this Pali term literally means a one-pointed state, a one-pointed state of mind. This mental factor is the primary component, is the really the essence of concentration, the essence of samatha. Be it a sustained concentration and a potentially absorbed concentration or a momentary focus of attention. One-pointed one-pointedness, ikagata, temporarily inhibits sensual desire. And it weakens it overall, which is, is a very necessary condition for any deeply transformative meditative attainment. The function of ikagata is that it very closely contemplates the object, whatever the object may be. Though it can't do it on its own. It can't perform this function on its own. It requires the uh, joint or cooperative action of the other four factors of mind that we've just explored, each performing its own special function. Vitaka, applying the attention, Vichara, sustaining the attention. All of these along with various other associated mental factors. Piti, bringing delight in the object. And Sukha, experiencing a sweet happiness in relationship to the object. And all of this has been going on with each of you as you've been practicing, even if you have not been aware of the process. And as I said, I think it's helpful to, at some point, to learn a little bit about this process of how it works. It brings a broader and deeper understanding of what we're doing and its manifestations, its fruits. So at the beginning of the talk, I mentioned that there's a list of 36 (laughs) uh, mental factors, wholesome and beautiful mental factors. I'm not going to elaborate on all of them. We'd be here for many hours or many days or something. Some of them have already been discussed, explored um, by Annie and by me, both in Dhamma Talks and also in some of the morning reflections. Some of them will be explored uh, and discussed as the retreat goes on 
both in Dhamma talks and in morning reflections. So I'm going to just go through, uh, I'll, I'll list them all, but I'll go through some of them and talk just a little bit about some of them. <clears throat> the next one in this, this body of 36 beautiful and wholesome mental factors, in Pali it's adimoka, which translates as decision or resolve. It literally means the releasing of the mind into the object. And so it's rendered as decision or resolution. And its characteristic is one of conviction. And its function as it, as it comes to be, as it manifests in our practice, is that of not groping around. We're clear, we're resolved, we've made a decision. It manifests, of course, then as decisiveness. Its nearest and most immediate cause is that it needs something to be convinced about. <laughs> and so we find different times and different factors and different aspects of our practice to make a resolve towards, to decide to attend to. In the commentaries it's been um, compared to a stone pillar owing to its very unshakable resolve regarding the object, whatever the object of attention is. The next uh, wholesome and beautiful factor or quality of mind is in, in polyviria or energy. It's the state or the action of one who's vigorous, energetic. And the characteristic, it, how it acts, its characteristic is it supports. It supports and marshals, we could say, or mobilizes so that we're energetically, in our, energetically present and active in our practice. Its function is that it supports the states, all the various states that it's associated with, because there's lots going on, of course. And, importantly, it manifests in our practice as non-collapsing. Now, every one of us in this room have had the experience of a collapsing mind, so to say, a sinking mind. Right? Yes. Well, energy, uh, virya, manifests as the non-collapsing, non-sinking mind. The closest cause for virya, for this energy to manifest, is a sense of urgency, spiritual urgency, samvega, or some ground for arousing energy. It could be as simple as taking a nice brisk walk outside, or maybe doing 15 minutes of mindful yoga or 
mindful Feldenkrais or some mindful exercise or anything in fact that wholesome that stirs that stirs and inspires one's internal energy towards vigorous action meaning vigorous action energetic practice is what that means so that's that's the seventh we're on number going to number eight (laughs) moving right along the eighth one is chanda in Pali which is wholesome desire and I think it's it's always important in our practice to understand wholesome desire the desire to act the desire to perform an action or to achieve a result this kind of desire really needs to be distinguished from unwholesome desire unwholesome desire stems from greed it stems from lust chanda is a wholesome desire when it's associated with various wholesome intentions and of course we are always looking at that or not always but a good deal of time looking in that in our practice and trying and understanding it through our direct experience what's wholesome what's unwholesome both as an intention and as a manifestation of the mind chanda can function as the virtuous desire to achieve a worthy goal a worthy goal in our practice and it's spoken of metaphorically which I I really like this this metaphor it's spoken of metaphorically as the stretching forth of the mind's hand toward the object so the next wholesome beautiful state is faith and I did speak about that um, in one of the morning reflections and I think Annie's mentioned it a few times in talks so I'm not going to do anything else with that at this point the next one is mindfulness which gets talked about ad infinitum in this retreat and probably every other retreat you've ever sat so I'm not going to go there either at this point the next two kind of go together moral shame which is hiri in Pali and moral dread or fear of wrongdoing actually is a more contemporary way of of describing otapa so these go together hiri otapa and these are really beautiful factors of the heart of the mind hiri otapa and can be considered to be absolutely necessary for the protection of the family the community the world and all relationships this sense of moral shame in relationship to others and fear of wrongdoing from a very wholesome healthy place the next one is non-greed the next one is non-hatred and I'm not going to elaborate on those at this point 
The next is neutrality of mind, neutrality of the heart, which is very closely associated with the experience of equanimity. And the next is the tranquility of mind and heart, which again, many of you have had tastes of in this retreat and certainly in other times of practice. This is, tranquility is an extensive uh, calmness. It's, it's deeper than um, the beginnings of feeling calmness in our practice. It's much more extensive calmness, tranquility. And this list goes to tranquility of mind and heart and tranquility of consciousness. So tranquility of consciousness in relationship to all of the sense doors. Eye consciousness, ear consciousness, nose consciousness, tongue consciousness, touch consciousness, and mind consciousness. The tranquility in relationship to all these consciousnesses that occur again and again and again in relationship to experience at each of the sense doors. The next one is a lightness of mind, a lightness of heart. And I, I both experience this and think of this as a brightness, brightness and lightness, it's a kind of soft, bright light of heart and mind. It's the opposite of something we've all experienced, a heaviness, the sinking of the heart and the mind and consciousness. The next two are malleability, the malleability of the mind and the heart and the malleability of consciousness. And really what this means is non-rigidity. So the heart, the mind and consciousness is malleable, not rigid. Very important quality as our practice develops. The next is a term that I don't really ever use except when I'm talking talking about the Dhamma, but wieldiness of the mind and heart and wieldiness of consciousness. And what this really means is the ability, our ability or one's ability to go where it needs to go, for the mind, the heart, and consciousness to go where it needs to go. Another really important quality. The next one is proficiency of mind and heart and proficiency of consciousness. So proficiency being the quickness and the clarity and the skillfulness of the mind, the heart, and consciousness. These are all really, as you can see, they're really beautiful and wholesome qualities that you've experienced to some degree, probably every single one of these I've listed, even if you haven't been aware of it or named it. But when I say it, maybe it's helping to point a little bit to your actual experience. And of course, they, each of these qualities, these capacities, develop and develop and develop and blossom and blossom as we keep practicing. The next one, honesty. Honesty of mind and heart, uprightness of mind and heart, honesty, uprightness, 
of consciousness. And then the next um, four are qualities that you've heard of many, many times in retreat, um, probably separate Dhamma talks about each of them at times. Metta, the unconditional loving kindness capacity of the heart and mind. Compassion, karuna, appreciative joy, mudita, and equanimity, upekka. And Annie spoke quite beautifully about compassion the other night. And uh, at some point in the not-too-distant future, I'll be giving a talk about um, metta. And there'll be other exploration about um, some of the others here. The next one is non-delusion. Some of these are listed in the negative. (laughs) So non-delusion, which I'm not going to go into. I... It, it's been attended to and will get attended to more as the retreat goes on. There are three more <clears throat> beautiful mental factors that are called, particularly called the abstinences. And there are three uh, quite distinct mental factors that the Buddha often spoke about. And they're listed in particular ways. So the first is called natural abstinence. And it's the abstinence from mental and physical deeds that cause harm when the opportunity arises to engage in them due to various conditions. Conditions in in ordinary everyday life. Conditions such as one's social position in life, or one's age, or one's particular level of education. And there's many other circumstances. So this natural occurring abstinence in these ordinary everyday circumstances. The second um, of these three uh, beautiful factors in the basket of the abstinences is abstinence by undertaking the precepts. So this commitment that we've taken during this retreat and that maybe you uh, follow, adhere to uh, in your life as a whole. Uh, The commitment to live one's life observing the precepts. Five precepts, eight precepts, maybe more precepts. Abstaining from the five, abstaining from uh, killing, abstaining from harmful speech, Uh, abstaining from stealing or taking what's not given, abstaining from sexual misconduct, and abstaining from taking intoxicants. So that's the abstinence by undertaking the precepts. And of course there's more precepts, but at this point I'll just leave it at that. The third is called abstinence by eradication. And this comes about through the fruits of engaging in the, as it's called, the supra-mundane path of purification of the heart, of the mind, of consciousness. And this is the path that we're engaged in, the Buddha-Dhamma path of awakening, the path of liberation, 
And what this means is abstinence by eradication is what is eradicated, and this is pretty amazing if you consider it, what is eradicated is the disposition towards engaging in any deeds that cause harm. That's pretty amazing to get to that point, even a little bit. (laughs) The disposition is eradicated towards engaging in deeds that cause harm. And we, we have tastes of that. Our life really does change. Our, our disposition really does change through our practice, as you all can attest to, I'm sure, to whatever degree. The first two of these three abstinences are mundane, or they're common, they're ordinary in the worldly sense. But this last one, the eradication or the disposition towards engaging uh, in any deeds that cause harm being eradicated, um, this one is, we could say, supramundane. Uh, meaning it's not common. It's not common in the worldly sense at all. But it's of a very purified, spiritually, it's of a very spiritually purified nature. So we're, we've actually gone through 32 (laughs) of these states. The next one, the next three, we could say, are certainly um, aspects of the heart and the mind that we've all heard a lot about through our practice and that we practice a lot. Right speech, this beautiful potential quality of being, right speech, abstaining from wrong speech, meaning abstaining from lying, false speech, slanderous speech, harsh harsh speech. And the last one, which I think is always kind of an interesting one, is frivolous talk. What does that mean? Take a look. (laughs) The next one is right action. So abstaining from action that causes harm, bodily harm. Killing, stealing, sexual misconduct, um, and again, it's it, it, it it's broad, and it the subtleties of each of these become more and more available to us as our practice deepens, as our mindfulness, our focused attention, uh, and our wisdom starts to blossom more and more. The last of these three is right livelihood. So this abstaining from what's called in the classical teachings wrong livelihood. And classically it's really spoken about in very specific ways, such as dealing with poisons, dealing with weapons, um, intoxicants, uh, animals for slaughter, people being used in unwholesome ways or harmful ways. And again, all of this 
this approach to how one does their livelihood, what kind of work we do in the world, um, becomes again more and more subtle. Our understanding of what causes harm in relationship to our work in the world becomes more and more subtle as our uh, practice develops and deepens. All of these abstinences that I've just spoken about function as a kind of shrinking away from or shrinking back from doing harmful deeds, from engaging in harmful, in the world, in harmful ways. The closest and most pertinent causes for these Uh, for these uh, particular aspects of the beautiful mind, the beautiful heart, are the special and beautiful qualities of faith and hiri otapa. The shame of engaging in harmful deeds, fear of wrongdoing, and also of having um, uh, another uh, close and very pertinent cause of of uh, the development of these qualities, these beautiful qualities, are having few wants and few wishes. The last of these beautiful, 36 beautiful qualities of heart and mind, beautiful and wholesome qualities, is that of wisdom. The wisdom faculty the wholesome and beautiful mental factor of insight, of understanding. And that is constantly being nurtured, explored and nurtured and developed as our practice unfolds. This path that we're on is really a path of the heart, a path of the mind. And I found a a quote just today, actually, from Carlos Castaneda that uh, says this in his um, particular way. He says, A person of knowledge chooses a path with a heart and follows it and then looks and rejoices and laughs, then sees and knows. The importance importance of beginning to clearly recognize at least some of these experiential states in relationship to your own practice experience as concentration and mindfulness continue to blossom is that with the knowledge of what is occurring and why it's occurring we have the opportunity, we have the possibility to see and to recognize 
and to know these beautiful states without attachment and without self-identification and without fear or other aversive reactions or misunderstandings and misperceptions but rather with what is classically called dispassion which is really what allows the development of our practice to just continue to keep unfolding. In their fullness, in their utmost maturity, these are the wholesome, beautiful qualities of the heart and mind, the wholesome capacities of a liberated heart, a liberated mind. And I'd like to uh, uh, share what might seem a bit odd uh, to you, some advice um, from a man named Robert Piercig, who wrote The Zen, Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. And this is from that book, actually. Some of you may have read that book many years ago, or maybe recently, I don't know. And this uh, particular bit of advice from this book is called Peace of Mind. So the thing to do when you're working on a motorcycle, as in any other task, is to cultivate the peace of mind which does not separate oneself from one's surroundings. When that is done successfully, then everything else follows naturally. Peace of mind produces right values. Right values produce right thoughts. Right thoughts produce right actions. And right actions produce work, which will be a material reflection for others to see of the serenity at the center of it all. And closing the talk with some words from a Tibetan master from the 11th century, Atisha. The greatest achievement is selflessness. The greatest worth is self-mastery. The greatest quality is seeking to serve others. The greatest precept is continual awareness. The greatest medicine is the emptiness of everything. The greatest action is not conforming with the world's ways. The greatest magic is transmuting the passions. The greatest generosity is non-attachment. The greatest goodness is a peaceful mind. The greatest patience is humility. The greatest effort is not concerned with results. The greatest meditation is a mind that lets go. The greatest wisdom is seeing through appearances. And let's 
sit quietly for just a few minutes. And we'll close this part of the evening chanting the sharing of blessings together. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.